morning. Oh, come on now. Y'all can do better than that. Good morning. Man, how do you follow that up? <laughs> wow. I can't help. I was standing there. I was thinking, like, just you talk about how deep the Father's love is for us. And you sit there and you're thinking, and you're just looking at all the failures you have. And he's like, I don't deserve any of this. I deserve the consequences for every single failure I have. Because my failures far outweigh my successes. But... We're going to go into the Word now. I um, hope everybody's having a good start to your year um, and a good start to a good last week. I know it was really exciting for um, my family. My brother and his wife welcomed their new baby girl on Thursday, so it's super exciting. Um, it's definitely an encouragement in a time where our family has walked through God bringing people home to see God give us new life to celebrate. Um, and I'm not sure which is weirder, the fact that I have a niece or my little brother has a little girl. <laughs> I've, I've yet to figure out which is the weirder on that one. But um, I work, obviously, many of you know I work at GNC, and during this time of year, this is one of the big months for us because, of course, we have people that get on their New Year's resolutions. And so far, my New Year's resolution seems to be not sleeping well, not eating well, and not exercising. So I've just decided that January is my mulligan month. We're going to start this on February 1st. But uh, um, I'm pretty sure pastors mentioned this already. The sermon series we're going to be starting is called Renew. And it focuses on going into the new year with a renewed emphasis on being close to God and walking with God. This sermon isn't really part of that. Really, this is kind of a precursor. It's a tease trailer for like a movie that comes out. They have like a teaser trailer. Anyway, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to be looking at what it means to have gospel-centered unity. So if you would all stand for the reading of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says... So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Y'all can go ahead and be seated. Those of you in Next Gen know I love this passage. There's so very much in this passage, and as the old saying goes, we could spend a month of Sundays just looking at this one passage. But as I said before, we're going to start looking through this passage, looking for what is like symptomatic of gospel-centered unity and how do we go about having that. So I don't know how many of you had debate class in school, but I know when I had debate class, we always, they talked about things that you have to assume to be true in order to debate something. 
So, for example, if we're going to debate what color the sky is, we have to acknowledge, like, we're all assuming that the sky exists and that it has a color. Because if you don't have that, you can't debate what color the sky is. Well, Paul starts out this passage looking at a grouping of assumed realities. They are things that he just assumes to be true of a body of believers. And they are encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. So that's kind of Paul's like 101 level class. Like that's the basics, if you will, of a body of believers. And that allows Paul, just as it allows us to in a debate, to then begin to build and move on to the later passages. So after the assumed realities, Paul's going to go to a group of prescribed realities. These are things he wants to be true. I to figure out how far I can get over. All right, cool. So there are things that Paul wants to become true in order to have the gospel-centered unity. And they are being of the same mind, having the same love, and being of full accord. And so for me, I don't know if it's just me, but I like to have things defined. Like if I'm supposed to do something, I want to know what it is I'm supposed to do. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take these three things and we're going to look at both the word that is used and where else it occurs in Scripture and see if we can glean some knowledge as to what Paul's implying with these three words. So the first one is that we're to have the same mind. And the word used there is the Greek word for neo. And it occurs several times in Scripture, but one that stood out to me as kind of being insightful towards what Paul's implying is Colossians 3, verse 2. And it says, set your minds on the things above, not on things that are on earth. So while I was staying up way too late last night, I was watching NFL football, and Kansas City was playing Miami in Kansas City. And there was a negative 27-degree wind chill. Adequate football. I, I, I'd have been like, nope. I have an injury, I have, I'm a retire, like I'm done, we're, we're not doing this. Like a Super Bowl cannot be that good. Like it simply cannot to go freeze my butt off for six hours in negative 27 degree weather. Nope, not doing it. I promise there's a point to this. Just, just give me a second. But one of the hallmarks of the Miami team is they're all about motions. There's constantly people moving back and forth. And the whole point is to distract the other team's eyes. They're trying to get the other team's eyes off of where they're supposed to be. And Satan, in essence, acts in the same way. There's so many things in this world that Satan puts in front of us to pull our eyes off of where it should be, to pull our mind off of where it should be. And so when we talk about having our minds set on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, we have to be diligent to have our minds so focused on what's above that everything else that they try to put in front of us seems irrelevant. Like, we don't even notice it. It's all about having your mind set on the things that are above. The second thing that Paul wants us to do is have the same love. And our English language almost sells us short of a true depth of understanding of what the word love can mean. Because... You can't, in English, we have one word. It's just love. Love is the word. And we rely on context to understand what we're talking about. Like, you could say, I love little Debbie cakes. I shouldn't. I should love them less, but it just is. And 
you also, I love riding my motorcycle. Maybe not when it's this cold outside, but I love it 98% of the time. But the question is, is the love that I have for Little Debbie Cakes and my motorcycle, is it the same love that I should have for members of Christ's body? Well, let's take a look at Scripture, and we'll circle back to answer that question. So the Greek word used here is the word agape. It's used all over Scripture. It's in a ton of the verses I'm sure you've heard, and you've probably heard that word mentioned. But one of the ones that I would propose gives the most insight to the nature of the word is found in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, verse 13. It says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So we ask the question, is the love that I have for Little Debbie Cakes or my motorcycle the same as the love I should have for members of his body? It's not even close. It goes beyond not in the same ballpark. It goes beyond not in the same league. It's a whole different sport. The love that I have for animate objects is completely different from what I have for his church. It looks completely different. It's shown completely different. Because agape is a sacrificial love. It's a love I can only show by putting aside what I want and putting aside my benefit so that others can benefit. And obviously, we would all have, we've sang all morning about what the most prominent example of that sacrificial love is. And so that is what the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is telling us. We have to love each other like that. The third thing Paul prescribes is that we have to be in full accord. And a full accord is not a Japanese car full of college students going to Waffle House, although... If you have the will to want to, you can get a lot of people in a Honda Accord. But on a serious note, I looked through Scripture and tried to find where this word is used, but it's only used here from what I found. The thing is, though, I found a very interesting explanation about the word. Because the word is simpsychosis. And the word has two parts to it. Sin means together with, or done together. Psychos is inner life. So we put them together, it's a united inner life. And when I talk about the inner life, it's not like the like little two little people sitting on your shoulders that you're constantly listening to, constantly having conversations with those. No, it's, we talk about it in the understanding pre-Calvary, if you weren't the single designated person that God had, through the casting of lots, decided could enter his presence, you had no way to enter the presence of God. Because the consequences of Genesis 3 meant that there was both a physical and a spiritual barrier between us and the presence of God. Our sin and all the filth associated with it kept us from being in communion with God. But the cross changed that. Now, post-cross, we, just as we looked at Philippians 4 a few weeks ago, we have the ability to enter the throne room of God. We don't need to go into a specific building. We are the specific building. We are the temple of God. And so it gives us the freedom to have daily, even minute-by-minute minute communion with God. 
And so it allows us to come and seek his counsel, his forgiveness, and his wisdom, all of which allow us to have unity with which Paul desires. So after the prescribed realities, Paul's going to spend a little bit of time talking about we have to eliminate one of two conflicting realities. The first reality we have to eliminate of, like, so the two realities, I'm going to try this sentence again. The two realities are selfish ambition and humility in Christ. And the thing about selfish ambition is, on the surface, things done out of selfish ambition look like they're genuinely desiring to do good for others. Um, I had the opportunity uh, as a child to travel around the world and see a myriad of different buildings. And as you see with hospitals and government buildings and all that kind of stuff, there's always, it's the insert name of rich person here, hospital or government building or whatever you have. And usually it's because they've given money to the hospital or the government building or all these things that they've contributed, therefore they get their name on the building. And it would be a bit arrogant, you could say, to presume that someone who is doing all these good things is doing so out of selfish ambition. If it was just up to Alex's limited wisdom, you would be correct. There's no way I could ascertain as to whether or not someone is doing something out of selfish ambition or true humility. But Paul tells us in verse 5 exactly how we are to determine that. Because Paul tells us that the humility and the act of counting others more significant than yourselves is only possible through a daily communion and walk with God. So if we as believers seek to do anything, do nothing of selfish ambition, it is only possible through us leaning in and having that united inner life and that connection with God and seeking what he would have us to do, not necessarily what our flesh would have us to do. And thus we can eliminate selfish ambition. Now that we've walked through the prescribed realities, we've dealt with the assumed realities and we've eliminated the conflicting realities. Now we get to the best part because now we get to talk about the transformative reality. Now we get to talk about what our Jesus did. So is it all right with y'all if I brag on what Jesus did for us? That's what I thought. So Paul mentioned, finishes the passage by describing the humility of Christ as it pertains to the cross. He mentions that Jesus did not consider his position with God as something to be grasped. So when I hear something to be grasped, the thought that comes to mind is an opportunity I had to do rappelling in high school. And for those of you who don't do rock climbing, basically climbing is going up, rappelling is the process of coming down. And it is. It genuinely is. (laughs) Once you're down on the face, it's fine. It's just kind of getting over that lip is really stressful. But because gravity is a thing, you have to have a way to slow yourself down. And so the way the rigging is, is done up is there is a um, D-ring, I think that's what it's called, yeah, on the front of your harness, and then a rope that goes around into the small of your back. And the way you slow yourself down is by pulling the rope really tight. Although, don't do it too quickly. It doesn't end well. You usually end up slapping the wall. So, 
when I talks about not viewing it as something to be grasped, in order to go down, you have to let go of that rope. You should do it in a controlled fashion or else you don't stop, but you have to let go of the rope. And so Paul's saying that Jesus didn't stay at the top of the tower. Jesus didn't keep a hold of that rope because Jesus didn't need us. He didn't need to come down, but we desperately needed Jesus to not hold on to that rope. Because Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 tells us, And we were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If Jesus holds on to the rope, that's all we get to be. There's no good we can do on earth that will ever eliminate that. The next six letters of that verse, though, change that trajectory forever. Because the next two words are both the most drastic oversimplification and yet most concise communication of the gospel that you can have. The two words, but God. But God means that in, all, in spite of all the shortcomings of which there are plenty, I don't have to be defined by who I used to be. I get to be defined by the next three verses that say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. But God says that I'm no longer bound by the sins that once plagued me. Because that same son, I'm now a joint heir with him when he was the one who spilled the blood to get me there. But God says that while I was still putting chains on myself, he broke them all forever. But God says that all the sins I committed in the past, the ones I continue to fall into today, and the ones I will continue to fall into in the future, are paid for. And it is the same truth that can be true of every single one of you. If you're a believer in Christ, your failures of the past don't define you. Your failures today don't define you. Your failures to come don't define you. Your definition is son or daughter of the almighty God of the universe. That's what but God buys for you. And what does Jesus get out of it? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're here today and you're a believer, I invite you to take advantage of the opportunity you have to enter the throne room. Ask him to give you encouragement from Christ and what he did for you. Ask him to give you comfort from his love give you affection and sympathy for those who are difficult to show it to. Ask him to help you to have a mind that is so focused on the things that are above 
that everything else around you that Satan tries to put in front of you seems irrelevant. Ask him to increase your understanding of, like we just sang, how deep the Father's love for us. I don't have children, but I know for a fact I would not give him up for any person on this earth, especially not for a person who continues to fall into the same traps that I saved them from by sacrificing my son. But God did. Then ask him to show you, Father, what am I doing out of selfish ambition? What are things that I can stand to do better and do out of humility that is driven by my understanding of what you did for me. And lastly, every single day, praise him for what his pain, suffering, and agony meant for you. If you're sitting in here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, please do not leave here without having a conversation with someone about what it means to accept the free gift of salvation because it doesn't cost you anything but submission. It's a free gift. Jesus didn't die for only the people he liked. He died for everyone he loved. So, I'm going to pray for us, and Matt's going to come and sing. The altar is open. Please come do business with God.